On June 26, 1948, the New Yorker magazine published a short story that would come to generate more mail than any work of fiction the magazine had ever published. Hundreds of shocked subscribers actually canceled their subscriptions when they read Shirley Jackson's story, The Lottery. Now, in the story, if you haven't read it, Jackson weaves a haunting tale about a small, unnamed American town that really could be anywhere, gathering for its annual town ritual. She describes this beautiful day in early summer, but you sense early on, as the birds are tweeting and the grass is lush and the kids are playing, that as the families in town gather, there's a bit of nervous tension in the air. Still, they're, they're here with a sense of resignation because this is the thing they just seem to always do, what they've always done. The community shows up to engage in this annual ritual, the lottery drawing. You, you get the sense as they're gathering that they kind of communicate that even if there's some like unpleasantness to this task, it's best to just get on with it, get it over with till next year. Some of the elders actually deride the towns nearby that are talking about giving up their lotteries, asserting there's a tradition that says the lottery actually helps the crop yield. And so with great solemnity, once all the families are gathered, they begin. The heads of each household find themselves stepping forward to draw a slip of paper out of a very old box, each hoping to find a blank piece of paper not one with a black dot on it. And before too long, one of these men, Mr. Hutchinson, he gets the slip with the dot. His wife, Tessie, starts to become defensive, claiming something is unfair about how the process is playing out. But the rest of the townspeople are unfazed. They keep moving forward. The whole Hutchinson family is brought to the front. Mr. Hutchinson, Mrs. Hutchinson, their young children, each of them is invited to draw a slip of paper. And when it becomes clear that it's the mother, Tessie, who has the slip with the dot, her defensiveness escalates. But the other townspeople, they know what they're here to do, just need to get through it. They pick up their stones. She cries out as the first rock hits her head, and then they are all upon her. It's a pretty horrifying story. But it's one that has come to be considered a classic in its genre, a favorite in high school English classes. And I think that's because despite how shocking many found the story when it was first published, readers have also acknowledged the way this story actually does shine a light on a human reality that many of us would rather not face. But one which, particularly in the shadow of World War II when this story was written, America couldn't really deny. Whether we like to acknowledge it or not, we humans have a violent streak to us. And particularly when we work together as a collective, that violence can be expressed in pretty terrifying ways. Well, we're starting with this somber story and what it illustrates because it's now officially the Lenten season, and this Lent we're doing something a little unique. I'm leading us through an exploration of the work 
of a 20th century academic named René Girard. Okay, this is him. And we're considering his theory of human behavior and its implications on a Jesus-centered faith. Now, Girard finished his academic career at Stanford. He was a big thinker. And y'all, we're going to kind of dive deep into some big thought today. So bear with me. I hope you're ready. Um, his fields included anthropology, philosophy, literary studies, mythology, and more. And pulling all of these together, Girard developed this like grand theory of how humans behave with one another, and particularly how this violent streak that humans have comes out in social groups, okay? And it's a theory, I'm, I'm bringing you into this, because it's a theory that I have found, and some of my co uh, like colleague friends, my clergy friends, we have found uniquely helpful, not only in understanding the world we live in, but also how our faith might have particular relevance and power in this world, particularly in the kind of divisive time I would argue we find ourselves in today. So as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Girard started his work in academia, not as a person of faith, he was an atheist. But he ended up coming to a Jesus-centered faith because of how he, the way that he saw the Christian faith actually uniquely interact with this kind of way he was coming to understand the world. So that's kind of what we're going to be exploring over the next few Sundays between now and Easter. So over these next Sundays together, I'm going to invite us to take a look at some very old stories from ancient scriptures, from our Bible, with this new perspective to many of us of René Girard. And perhaps with that new perspective, we might find some new meaning in these stories, some new meaning in this faith. So I'm calling the story old, the, the series Old Stories, New Lenses, right? And each week together, we'll explore a story from our biblical canon with the insights of Girard, with his lenses in mind, and see how things might resonate in a helpful way. Okay, so that's the project we're engaging in. Before we get into our story for today, we did kind of a little intro a couple weeks ago, but I know it was a holiday weekend, a lot of us weren't here. So I'm just going to review the very foundational concepts that we kind of talked about two weeks ago, okay? And this is the idea that human desire is mimetic desire. That means imitative. This is kind of the core foundational idea of Girard, that human beings are wired for imitation, we, kinda, we already know that's true. I think most of us would argue that that's true. That's how a baby learns to talk, is they, they imitate. But Gerard would say it goes to the things we desire. We want the things we want because we actually see others want them. We don't think that's the case. We tend to believe that we have control over our desires, that maybe that they are innate. But Gerard would assert that, truthfully, all our desire is really mimetic. It's something we copy. And both scientists who study the way the brain works, as well as the advertisers who, who bet that this is true and are using it to sell us stuff, they both seem to kind of validate this hypothesis. So as we discussed in the last teaching, mimetic desire in and of itself, there's not any problem with it. It's just the way we relate. 
It, it binds us together. It's not a bad thing. But it can become a problem in a couple of ways. First, it's problematic when we begin to mimic one another's destructive desires. This is kind of what happens sometimes with addiction, right? We, we start to see others who have a desire for a, a substance that might not be good for us, and we mimic that too and fall into it ourselves. But more commonly even, I think Gerard would say mimetic desire becomes a problem when it leads to envy and rivalry. Because envy and rivalry often have a way of escalating to violence. So we saw last time, Gerard thought that the stories of the first family in the Hebrew Bible, they demonstrate these ideas. Adam and Eve, for Gerard, mimic a desire they first see in a serpent. The desire for this fruit, this forbidden fruit. And that desire ends up being destructive to them. And then their kids, Cain and Abel, also show mimetic desire. And in their case, it leads to envy and rivalry. And that rivalry ends up leading to the first death in the Bible, the murder of Abel at the hands of his brother Cain. Okay, so that's kind of catching you up to where we're at now. So Gerard understood that mimetic rivalry was extremely powerful. Okay, but a society couldn't function if everyone was so rivalrous that, like, they all killed their own brothers and sisters, right? That would not work very long. You'd have total chaos. You'd have annihilation if every shared desire escalated to murder. And that's why Girard believed that groups over time figured out how to channel all these rivalrous tendencies and direct their violence into a less destructive way of being expressed. And the evidence he saw for this, this kind of evolution in society as an anthropologist, was in the same ancient practice that Shirley Jackson actually had in mind when she wrote her story, The Lottery, in 1948. It's the practice of human sacrifice in the ancient world. So Girard noticed that in the ancient world, the idea of blood sacrifice that was like nearly universal. Anthropologists tell us that cultures around the globe practiced it. Why is that, right? We're probably disgusted by the idea of blood sacrifice. But interestingly, Girard believed that for primitive cultures, the development of sacrifice was actually a new technology. It was an important step in social development, it played a purpose. Humans, fueled by mimetic desire, that created rivalries that they were often unable to even perceive, they needed an outlet for the violence that was coming out. And rather than just blow the group apart with violence going all over the place, they did what the characters in the lottery were doing. They found a way to resolve that tension and violence by putting it on one single victim what you could call a scapegoat, okay? And that brings us to the next central building block in Girard's work. This is really kind of the heart of his theory, understanding what he calls the single victim mechanism or the scapegoat mechanism, okay? So if you're doing the fill in the blanks, we have some sheets around if you want, you can do that. I think that we might be getting there. 
to where we start doing that. So what's this scapegoat mechanism about? Okay, we're going to, before we get into any Bible stories, I'm just going to try to explain this theory, and then we'll kind of see where it might apply to a story, okay? So first, we're just going to walk through this, the, the theory, and I have it for you in five steps. Okay, step one, a group becomes tense and anxious. A group becomes tense and anxious as there are stressors on the community, and rivalries within a group become present. Now, I'm just going to name, just because we don't practice blood sacrifice doesn't mean that this does not happen today. I think you will recognize the, the kind of fundamentals of his theory. All right? So we have a tense group. You might have factions develop within the group. Maybe I'm in rivalry with Elisa, okay? And people start to sense that rivalry. I love you, Elisa. It's just an example. <laughs> People start to sense it, right? And they start to mimic my, my envy of, of Elisa. Or they start to mimic her envy of me. And we start to have kind of an amplification of the rivalry, right? And as things amplify, as that mimetic kind of nature escalates, things get really tense really fast. And the group needs an outlet for the violence, or it's going to just tear apart, and we're going to have an outright war between Team Leah and Team Elisa, right? And this is where Gerard notices something interesting happens. Step two, the group coalesces around a single victim, or it can be a small minority, to receive the collective anxiety and violence of the group. So how does that happen? Well, according to Gerard, an individual, or it can be a minority group, is singled out for something that makes them different, something that makes them other. Maybe it's something about the way they look. Maybe it's their race. Maybe they come from a different place. Maybe they speak a different language. They could be from a religious minority. They could be from a sexual minority. They could be differently abled. What it is is truthfully quite arbitrary. What matters is it's a distinctive that sets the person or group apart from the larger group in some way. Now this mechanism can play out in any kind of group. Many families often identify kind of a black sheep of the family, right? It can happen in schools, classrooms. It can happen in companies, in community organizations. And sadly, as many of us I think have seen firsthand, it can happen in churches too. So that takes us to step three. Once a victim has been identified, the other, an accusation against them is made. It's usually something taboo to the group, something dehumanizing to the accused. That person is a rapist. They are a murderer. They are a terrorist. Something that shocks people and makes them feel like this is not a person. This is a dangerous threat. It's vermin. This person is infesting our community. That's the kind of language that's often used. Now we need to say, this is almost always a false accusation. No one's totally perfect. We all have our faults. We all make mistakes. But often, scapegoats are actually innocent of the crimes that they are being accused of. In fact, the accusation the mob makes is often more true of the mob itself than the person they are accusing. 
So once the single victim or subgroup's been identified and they've been accused, we reach step four. The victim is subjected to violence. They're expelled from the community. They're excommunicated from the church. They're isolated. They're fired. They're incarcerated. They're deported. Or perhaps in the most extreme instances, they are killed. And then we have step five. Group peace is momentarily restored until the cycle repeats itself. Group peace is momentarily restored until the cycle repeats itself. So tension, for the time being, is eliminated. It has been fueled towards this common enemy. And that has actually united people that were divided otherwise. Now we need to name, this is a fragile peace. It cannot be an enduring peace. It's only felt because the tension has been projected onto a victim it hasn't really been dealt with. Inevitably, at some point, the system's going to develop rivalries again. It's going to become anxious again, and a new scapegoat will be needed. But for the moment, once the victim's expelled, everyone feels a little better. They're all on the same team again. Now, often afterwards, the scapegoat is thought of more kindly because that happens. Everyone feels that sense of relief. And then they actually kind of feel better, even about the person they just kicked out, right? They remember them a little more fondly. In fact, in ancient cultures, the scapegoat was made into a hero, even a god. No one feels guilty because the guilt has been dispersed amongst the group. People might talk about that thing that happened last night rather than the thing we did last night. The other reason that the guilt is not felt is because there's a total denial that scapegoating has actually taken place. Right? People don't see this person as a victim. They see them as somebody who needs to be justly punished. In fact, the scapegoating mob tends to see themselves as the victim. Look at what this person is doing to us. We're just defending ourselves, right? But by reframing it that way, they are able to set this up. This coping mechanism works by blinding people to what they are doing. Does that make sense? The folks involved refuse to see what's actually taken place. And that allows there to be this corporate deniability. And the denial comes through the dehumanization of the victim. They're the horrible thing. They're the vermin. And also through their voice being silenced or delegitimized. Their perspective doesn't get to enter the conversation. We don't get to hear their voice. We don't get to understand how they would see it. The way the stories told amongst the group simply affirms that the violence was just, that it was necessary, even deserved. Case closed. So when Girard studied ancient myths, he saw in them this process of distributing the responsibility away from people who had enacted communal violence 
in order for them to justify a collective murder. He believed most cultures were formed after an original act of collective violence, a murder or like an expulsion from the community. And when the group committed that act together, they experienced that group peace for a moment. And it was unifying. It saved the group. And so the murder becomes sacred in the community. And a story arises around it. For him, this is what myth is. Myth emerges to reframe the violence that has happened. The murder becomes a sacrifice. It starts to be framed as this necessary thing that happened to appease the gods. And the mythology develops that to fill out the story of why the violence was needed. And rituals around the myth emerge and future generations can now just enact those rituals, paying homage to these gods their stories and their ancestors have told them of. And are less and less aware of how the ritual is now functioning, not really to appease any angry deities or to secure them a better crop yield. It's really functioning to express the people's own anger and violence. Does that make sense? You with me? So one Greco-Roman myth that Gerard pointed to a lot to demonstrate this was the myth of Oedipus. We're not going to get into all of it, but I'll just summarize the big points. In the myth, the city of Thebes is experiencing a plague. And in order to deliver the city from the plague, they cast out King Oedipus, cause him to blind himself and spend his days wandering in the wilderness. And in the myth, the violence against Oedipus is justified because the story accuses him of committing these taboo sins of killing his father and sleeping with his mother. Incest and patricide, super taboo in the community. Of course you would get him away. He's bringing the curses of the gods on the community. That's why we have a plague. So the myth takes the side of the city of Thebes. It celebrates the citizens for doing the right thing by expelling the king. It never examines whether Oedipus should actually be held responsible in this way for the things that he is accused of. It never asks that question. So when Girard, this atheistic anthropologist, developing this hypothesis, this theory around how humans behave and why we had sacrifice in the ancient world, he turns to the Bible expecting to see more of the same. Expecting to see the pattern of mythology there, kind of just in another, this is now the Hebrew and Christian version. He expected to see this single victim mechanism recast, justified, reframed by the stories as a heroic sacrifice to appease the gods. But instead, when Gerard began to look at the Hebrew and Christian stories, he actually saw something very different. And one of the first places he noticed a difference most clearly was in another story very early in the Bible, in Genesis. It's the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob. So that's what we're going to look at today with Gerard's theory of scapegoating mechanism now, kind of hopefully understood at least in some part. We're going to take a look 
with that as the lens at this story from Genesis 37. So I'm going to say this is a very long story. We're not going to get into all of it. It's several chapters long. This could be an interesting exercise, though, as a follow-up for you this week. If you want to go back um, and read the whole story, I invite you to do that. Um, but today we'll just look at chapter 37, and then also I'll summarize kind of where it goes from there. So picking up in verse 2, we've got it on the screen. You can read along with me there or on the sheet if you like. So this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, his 17-year-old son, was taking care of, all of the flocks with his brothers. And just if you didn't know, Joseph has 11 brothers. Now he was a youngster working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel, same person as Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son born to him late in life. And he made a special tunic for him. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and were not able to speak to him kindly. Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the middle of the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright, and your sheaf surrounded my sheaf and bowed down to it. And then his brothers asked him, Ugh, do you really think you will rule over us or have dominion over us? And they hated him even more because of his dream and because of what he said. All right, so we'll take a break real quick there. Already we can see this mimetic rivalry at work, right? The stage is set for the kind of mimetic conflict that Gerard describes. We have this group of sons, and Joseph, Joseph's got ten older brothers, and there seems to be some comparison already happening between them, right? The first moment we meet Joseph, he's bringing dad a bad report about what the big brothers did. Right? Anyone who is in a family with multiple kids knows that's a setup for, uh, for some anxiety when one kid is telling on the others. Right? We don't know exactly what they did, but apparently it's something that father's not going to be pleased with. Meanwhile, Joseph is the shining star. Dad sees something special to him. He is favored. Now, the story says it's because he was born late in life. But if it's not just about being the baby, because Joseph has a younger brother that's born even later in Jacob's life, Benjamin. And so these boys, Joseph and Benjamin, these are the two sons of Rachel. Now this goes back to a story earlier. We find out Jacob had four wives, one of whom he really loved, and the others he took on to have babies with, basically, um, because Rachel couldn't conceive. And then after many, many years eventually she had two sons, and Joseph is the oldest. So perhaps that is part of this favor, right? He's the first long, longed-for child with the woman he really loves, okay? And this identity of Joseph's, this brother of another mother, sets Joseph apart from his older brothers. He's different, now, dad doesn't help that by bestowing on him this special tunic, the coat of many colors. Some scholars believe that that coat in the ancient world symbolized Jacob's intention for Joseph to actually be the primary heir, to get kind of the extra blessing of the father. 
Okay, now this is something, while that generally went to the firstborn, Jacob's story is he stole it from his older brother. And so it would make sense that he's also willing to kind of subvert tradition and put it on one of the younger children. And so the brothers see this favor from their father, and they're filled with envy and rivalry. And it continues from there as Joseph has this dream, and then there are more dreams of the same ilk, right? And he probably naively, unwisely shares them with his brothers. It's probably not super helpful in this situation because it only fuels the anger more. So we'll pick up the story a few verses later. The brothers are off grazing their flocks away from home, and, and Jacob sends Joseph to go follow after them and report back. And here's what happens. It's picking up in verse 18. Now Joseph's brothers saw him from a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, here comes their master of dreams. Come now, let's kill him. Throw him into the one of the cisterns. And then say that a wild animal ate him. Then we'll see how his dream turns out. Now when Reuben heard this, he rescued Joseph from their hands, saying, oh, let's not take his life. Reuben continued, don't shed blood. Throw him into the cistern that's here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this so he could rescue Joseph from them and take him back to his father. Now when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, the special tunic he wore. And then they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And when they sat down to eat their food, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. And their camels were carrying spices, balm, and myrrh down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Well, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let's not lay a hand on him, for after all, he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants passed by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And the Ishmaelites then took Joseph to Egypt as a slave. So later Reuben returned to the cistern to find that Joseph wasn't in it. He tore his clothes, returned to his brothers and said, oh, the boy isn't there. And I, where can I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, they killed a young goat, and they dipped the tunic in the blood. And then they brought the special tunic to their father and said, we found this. <gasps> Determine now whether it's your son's tunic or not. And he recognized it and exclaimed, it is my son's tunic. A wild animal has eaten him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters stood by him to console him, but he refused to be consoled. No, he said, I will go to the grave mourning my son. So Joseph's father wept for him. All right. Here we see the single victim mechanism at play, right? Let's just walk through the steps we talked about. Step one, the anxious system of brothers in rivalry develops, right? Step two, Joseph is identified as the different one. He's the outlier on whom the anger and resentment of all the brothers can be placed. We can put it on him 
So number three, an accusation is made. They accuse Joseph of wanting to dominate them, of wanting to have dominion over them. But this is a false accusation. Joseph was probably unwise to share his dream with them, a bit naive, but there's no evidence that he was actually trying to rule them, to oppress them. However, in taking matters into their own hands, the mob of brothers actually demonstrates their own desire to have oppressive dominion over Joseph. They accuse him of something they are doing. Number four, Joseph is subjected to the violence of the brothers. The tension hits a fever pitch, and when they have the opportunity, when they're alone with him, the mob of brothers decide to join together and end his life. But this is where we start to see a hint of something different in the Joseph story than what we would see in a classic myth. Unlike in many myths, there's a counter-narrative starting to develop. Joseph isn't being represented by the storyteller as this horrible guy who deserves dehumanization and death. The story paints him as a victim of a mob mentality, and we see that because we hear in the voice of Reuben the sense that something is wrong. The one brother who tries to say, hey, 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 let's not do this. Let's not take his life. Now, interestingly, Reuben's attempts to stop the scapegoating mechanism are only partially effective, right? He does get his brothers to hold off on killing him. But the moment his back is turned, for some reason he's not there when they decide to sell him to the Ishmaelites. Reuben, for one, his part, once he returns, he realizes his brother is gone. He has this crisis. What do I do? He's failed to save him. But now he no longer stands up to the crowd. He becomes one of them, participating in the deception, helping kill the goat and cover Joseph's tunic in the blood. He doesn't tell his father the truth of what happened. He could have done that. The rest of your sons sold him off. No, he becomes part of reinforcing the false narrative. And I think this is really interesting because Reuben's conflicted participation points out both that mob violence is ultimately unjust, that this was a bad thing they were doing, but also how challenging it can be to resist the mob once that is underway. The pressure of the mob tends to call people to fall into line and they become complicit in the violence that is being executed, even if they would say they don't agree with it. Maybe you've seen this dynamic play out. There are those who join the mob actively. They're the ones who might be using the racial slurs, spreading the false accusations, retweeting the bigoted tropes, right? And then there are those who participate through their silence. They know that what the system they're a part of is doing is wrong. They might even admit, I, I don't like the way that leader talks about women. I don't like the way he talks about people of color or trans folks. I don't, I don't really agree with that. But they are not willing to stand up and challenge the leader in question in a meaningful way. 
They are not willing to run the risk of finding themselves expelled by this group they feel a part of. And so in remaining quiet, they enable the violence to continue and the false justification for it. They become complicit through their silence. So we see that developing here. That's different. There's another difference from the norm that happens in the story, and that has to do with step five, the peace coming. In myth, when a character is expelled, unity is restored to the community, the community is healed, the plague of Thebes is lifted when Oedipus is cast out. But if the brothers were hoping that once Joseph was out of the way, they would experience more of dad's affection and love, it would just all come to them, their hope was in vain. The father's heartbroken. He's not going to let any of them comfort him. He says he will go to his grave with this grief. And we see decades later, when we meet these brothers again, that that is the case, that father is still heartbroken over what happened to Joseph. It never gets easier. And so here, too, the story of Joseph is resisting the idea that this violence put on Joseph was just simply a necessary thing, a sacrifice we had to make. We see instead the grief that it caused. And we get a glimpse of how great the human cost, how great the suffering is when violence is executed. That's usually minimized in a story that scapegoats. But Joseph's story isn't done. And that's one more really important way that this story seems counter to many ancient myths. Whereas myths often expel the scapegoat and then they show the group prospering because of the act and we never hear from the scapegoat again. They disappear from our view. In Genesis, the storyteller follows Joseph. The scapegoat is humanized. He is the hero. We follow his story. The author tells of Joseph's adventures in Egypt. He experiences the ups and downs. He's promoted at one point to head servant of a powerful household. And then, again, he's falsely accused, this time of having an affair with his master's wife. And again, he's expelled from that community. And we come to learn how painful and traumatic this is for Joseph each time these expulsions happen. And yet, over and over again, just as he keeps being rejected, we also see the divine seems present with Joseph in a real way and gives him opportunities for new life. So by the end of the story, Joseph has amazingly become the right-hand man to Pharaoh. He is like number two in the whole Egyptian empire. And his skill at dream interpretation and his wisdom has meant that he's been called upon to guide his nation through a major crisis, a famine that infects like the whole part of the world they're in. And the story ends with his brothers coming to Egypt, bowing before him, just as he had kind of prophetically seen in this dream, beseeching him for food, unaware that the Egyptian that they're bowing before is the brother they expelled years ago. And with that place of reversal. Joseph tests his brothers now that he has power over them. He calls on them. He sees what is who are they? Are they the same people? He asks them to sacrifice their youngest brother, Benjamin, to save the family and receive the food they need. He calls upon them to now make Benjamin the scapegoat 
Are they going to do it again? But the brothers aren't the same men. They once were. They refuse to break their father's heart again. They will not scapegoat young Benjamin. Instead, Judah, the very brother who said, hey, we should just sell him to the Ishmaelites, make a little coin. This brother now says, I will take the place of Benjamin. You can have me. He refuses to let it be put on his innocent brother. And in that moment, seeing that act of self-sacrifice, Joseph's overcome. He could totally exact revenge on all of the brothers who tried to kill him. But instead, he's so moved that rather than pursuing rivalrous vindication, we have forgiveness, we have reconciliation, we have healing, and restoration of relationship take place. And this, the way this story ends is completely different. It's a powerful counter to the way that this single victim mechanism usually goes. So Gerard, it, for him, it really matters that the Joseph story is so similar, and there are similarities we didn't get fully into, but there you can, some of the stuff he points to about how similar the Oedipus story is to the Joseph story, it's quite remarkable. So it matters that it's so similar, but also so different from Oedipus. And he describes that this way. I have the quote up here. Locating the common data allows us to take note of an irreducible difference an impassable gulf between the biblical story and the myth. The myth and the biblical story are in basic opposition over the decisive question that collective violence poses. Is it warranted? Is it legitimate? In the myth, the expulsions of the hero are justified each time, but in the biblical account, they never are. Collective violence is unjustifiable. Oedipus is responsible for the plague and can do nothing to heal it short of his own expulsion. But Joseph is not responsible for the famine. Moreover, he manages the crisis so ably that he protects Egypt from the disaster that could have occurred. The same question underlies both narratives. Does the hero deserve to be expelled? The myth answers at every point, yes. The Bible answers no, no, and no. The career of Oedipus ends in an expulsion whose finality confirms his guilt. Joseph's career ends in a triumph whose finality confirms his innocence. So according to René Girard, the story of Joseph is not simply another myth. It is a counter myth. The Joseph story is an undoing of the kind of narrative that lies behind ritualized violence. It calls BS. That is what it's doing. It is calling BS on this spin that we try to put forward to make human violence seem like the necessary thing to do. Joseph's story, as well as the others in the Hebrew Bible like it, like the story of Hagar, the story of Isaac, the story of Job and others, they also tell us something special about the God that all of these stories are trying to point to. And here's what that is. The God, I think we have this up here. The God of this set of stories does not justify collective violence. This God stands with those who are unjustly oppressed. This is not a God 
that justifies collective violence. This God stands with those who are unjustly oppressed and this disruption of the justification of collective violence is gonna become even more clear in the, life of work of, in the life and work of Jesus, which I promise we will turn to in our next teachings. But today, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap it for today. And as we end, I'm just going to ask us, what do we take away from this look, this deep dive into Rene Girard's scapegoat mechanism and how it seems to be revealed and challenged in the story of Joseph? I'm going to end by just giving us a few invitations to consider. Number one, consider where you have seen feelings of mimetic envy and rivalry projected outward onto an innocent victim in destructive ways. Where have you seen that scapegoat mechanism at play in your life? Shirley Jackson, author of The Lottery, wrote a response to one of the many letters sent her way by people wondering, what is this story about? And she replied, I suppose I hoped by setting a particularly brutal ancient rite in the present, in my own village, to shock the story's readers with a graphic dramatization of the pointless violence and general hum inhumanity in their own lives. Where's the generally inhumane? In your workplace, in your family, in your social media feed? Are you, and where have you found yourself? Maybe escalating the dynamic? being caught up in some of that rivalrous, mimetic feeling? Have you entered into that? Have you, like Reuben, tried to disrupt it? Do you find yourself kind of in that place in the middle, being coerced by the mob? So that's invitation one. Number two is kind of think about when you suspect scapegoating might be taking place. I think this might be a situation where that's happening. Pay attention to how the story is being told amongst the group. Pay attention to how the story is being told amongst the group. What voices are being amplified? What attitudes are becoming mimetic in the group? What voices are being suppressed? Is there a counter-narrative that seems to not be getting much play? How might you participate in lifting that up? What would that look like? And the third thing I'm going to invite us to do is invite the Holy Spirit to be present with you in the process of recognizing where the scapegoating mechanism has been at work in your life. Because I'm going to admit, this is some rough kind of inner work we're doing, right? If we actually kind of allow this to kind of have meaning, which I'm hoping it will be more than just an intellectual exercise, it's, it's probably going to hit some places that are going to bring up some pain. So for some of us, we might feel the pain of recognizing in real ways that we have been targets of false accusations and unjust violence. And that may have meant we were forced to leave a community, a family, a church, 
because we were different in some way. And the group we were a part of just could not deal with the tension of more than one narrative. So it silenced our own. To us, I believe, who may feel that, the Spirit wants to draw near with the promise that God is still with you and God does not endorse what's happened to you. So I want to make space for that and invite you to kind of make space for that in the coming weeks. Others of us may recognize ways in which we, perhaps completely unknowingly, have participated in projecting our anger, our rivalry, our resentment onto another, onto a group, Perhaps we recognize ways in which we saw that playing out in our group, but we didn't take any action to stop it. We stayed quiet like Reuben. And to us, I believe the Spirit wants to bring comfort and speak not shame, but hope that seeing this pattern, seeing it clearly, is the first step to changing it. And the Spirit wants to empower us, like the brothers were by the end of the story, to recognize the cost of what they had been a part of so that we can begin to heal by making different choices in the future. So those are the two things I'm going to kind of invite us to where to let this go, soak in a bit and go just from a heady exchange into kind of some deeper reflective work. The good news is we worship a God who's not content to let our BS stand. That God calls BS on us. The divine wants us to know the truth more deeply. So as Jesus said, the truth can set us free. May this Lent be a season of finding more and more freedom from our rivalrous and violent ways as we live into more and more of the truth. Amen. Amen.